I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is Pushback Talks. Back again, Leilani, we, we keep doing this podcast. We are amazing. How are you thinking? <laughs> Why are we doing this? It's a way to connect, that's all, yeah, to the world, to each other. We can see each other. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, we actually, we recently met because you came to my premiere in Copenhagen of, of Breaking Social. But that was the first time in three years. First time in three years, and it was very short. And I saw you, and then I didn't see you. It was that's like, correct. whoops, what happened? She, she just left. Yeah. But, but thank you for coming. It was a pleasure. It was a great world premiere of your film. I was so happy to be there. And it's a great film, Breaking Social. And you have some exciting news. You had a Kickstarter campaign so that you can have a big social impact with this film. And did you meet your goal in time? We did. We did. It's been, <laughs> it's been so stressful, but it's... Uh, yeah. It's crazy, and the, the weird thing is that the desperation of a crowdfunding campaign makes you work harder. And we've been a very good team here working really hard to get the message out. And, and I think now more people know a little bit about that there's a film coming out. But I mean, this is for all of you who listen to check it out. Uh, BreakingSocialFilm.com is the website, and there are, of course, social media accounts. And check it out. And and share the trailer with your friends and write to us if you want to engage more in this. But Leilani, um, we constantly talk about different things and our interests are global. Yes. Uh, but today we're going to fly into a country we haven't been looking into before. So this is Kenya, the great African nation. And I've been reading some some headlines, the rich man's road, Nairobi slum demolished for highway, that's the Guardian. Nairobi evicts 8,000 people amidst the pandemic and curfew. And the ongoing evictions of Mukuru slums have left 100 Kenyans homeless with nowhere to turn to. And I, I read one quote from somebody who said, I lived in Mukuru for 25 years, I thought this would be my home forever. And then the demolitions came and it, they come overnight. And remember, we, we did a podcast um, from Port Harcourt, uh, Nigeria. Yes. And it was the bulldozers came 6 a.m. without any notice before. So what can we do, Leilani? We can invite a human rights lawyer from Nairobi, Pauline Vata Musangi, a human rights lawyer, and she works and helps marginalized communities. And she's also has her own practice where she helps women for the right to land. So a really cool person. Welcome to our podcast, uh, Pauline. Thank you very much. Welcome, Pauline. So Leilani, you know each other from before. We know each other from yesteryear. When I was the UN Special Rapporteur, uh, Pauline and I had occasion to talk, to meet. She joined me in Geneva on a panel uh, to talk about the right to housing. And so it's a real pleasure to meet up with you again, Pauline. You were working at an NGO called Hakajami. Uh, they were working, Hakajami is, was working on social and economic rights. And I see now you've, you've ventured forward on your own to open your own firm and keep up this really important work. So it's, it's a pleasure to see you again, Pauline. Thank you. Thank you, Lelani. And thank you for having me again. Yeah. So 
I mean, we are reading these headlines and I mean, for us, we've seen forced evictions happening, Leilani being witnessed them personally. But I'm, I mean, Kenya has 50 million people almost and Nairobi 10. And it's like famous for having one of the biggest slums in the world. And slums sounds one thing, but it's also people's homes <laughs> for a lifetime sometimes. And then suddenly the government thinks they can do whatever they want with people's homes and just move in. So this is what you're in the midst of, I guess, in your work. Can you give us some insights in what you're up against right now? Uh, well, absolutely. Uh, forced evictions in Kenya mainly happen in the urban areas, uh, Nairobi. And most of the time, it's the very marginalized people living in informal settlements that are affected. And most often than not, you know, government justifies this position by saying either we are building roads or we are building affordable homes or social housing. And one of the things that comes out clearly is that government just looks at the projects and not the people. And the people who are evicted don't benefit from this project most of the time. Uh, from uh, 2013, we got into the devolved dispensation of government in Kenya. And so many county governments have been able to uh, sort of uh, plan their own uh, agendas towards affordable housing and social housing. So we have had uh, many evictions from 2013 because now counties are also forcefully evicting people to build. Uh, there's a national agenda, a big four agenda that was done in the previous government. And uh, affordable housing was one pillar. Uh, but, you know, we didn't realize this, this vision as a country because what happened is that government ended up evicting um, thousands of people, uh, especially during COVID. You know, there was just no stopping. There was no boundaries. And... Um, and even as we do this, we don't have a law in Kenya on forced evictions. We just have like five clauses in a land law act that just says, you know, don't evict people. Uh, you have to have a 30-day notice. But we really don't have a human rights framework that speaks towards forced evictions in Kenya. And that's where the problem begins. If you don't have a legislation, then it gives government the impetus to do whatever it feels like. Uh, even with the county governments, now we have two layers of governments doing the same thing, the national government and the county governments. And there's not much accountability going on because if you don't have a proper legislation, then how do you hold government accountable? If you take them to court, they'd just be like, oh yeah, uh, then give notice and still people are evicted. So it's really uh, an ongoing problem and it not only began 10 years ago, it's been there, it's, it's a historical issue. Uh, we don't have the answers yet as a country, as human rights activists as well. They, it's been slow in terms of uh, getting legislation out there. Uh, but one of the things that I'm proud of is that a lot of communities, especially those living in informal settlements, are empowered. Uh, they know their rights. They know what adequate housing means now, uh, and especially uh, towards the realization of basic services as well. So there's been some step, but again, the human rights violations are just too many. Yeah. Leilani, I mean, I, I read that Kenya has a constitution that recognizes the right to accessible and adequate housing as a fundamental human right. So it's in the constitution. So how do you, how do you see this, Leilani? 
Yeah, well, I'm, I would like to ask Pauline about that. She's a lawyer. I know she knows the Constitution well. She probably had something to do with the fact that the Constitution includes the right to housing. I'm sure she lobbied for that or advocated for that. Um, so, you know, there's obviously an inconsistency between what the Constitution says, and the Constitution also includes in it the right to participate. In other words, people should be consulted before decisions are taken that affect their lives. But obviously that provision in the Constitution is also not um, seemingly not being adhered to. But, you know, I, I put it to you, Pauline, um, is the Constitution any protection against these evictions? And, and what have, have the courts said anything about this constitutional provision and the eviction of people living in, in informal settlements? Well, uh, so in, in our Constitution, Article 43 um, says that you have the right to adequate housing. Now, the problem is it's not been operationalized with an act, right? So if you go to court, for example, uh, then you have to depend on international conventions you know, and general comments for you to argue out your point. And a case example is a case that um, uh, we did a couple of years back called the Me to Bell case. And we relied on international conventions to operationalize Article 43 of the Constitution. And the court was like, uh, okay, general comments do not form part of the law of Kenya. And uh, international conventions are only as good as what is ratified in Kenya. And so there's selective interpretation uh, by the courts, although the Supreme Court overruled that, and uh, they say that you know general comments also form part of the laws of Kenya by dint of them um, coming from the convention. But again, you see, it's a sort of like a ping pong idea. It depends on how the judge interprets this. So there is really importance uh, and urgency for us to have uh, a law, a housing law that really focuses on human rights-based approach on adequate housing beyond Article 43. You see, like the South African Constitution has a clause on forced evictions. Here, forced evictions is not looked as, as a component of housing. If you look at government projects, for example, what they uh, focus on and the regulations that are out on affordable housing, for example, they focus on the project and not the human rights aspect. And that's a problem because also the Constitution does not breathe life to that beyond just its stating that you have the right to adequate housing. So that creates a gap and, you know, a big gap towards human rights violation and people losing their homes. And another thing is that government, they don't see informal settlements or slums as homes. You know, it's just something that needs to be corrected. I think this is because I read here that approximately 60% of urban residents in Kenya live in informal settlements. So it's like a majority in every bigger city are living unsafe. I mean, they could be evicted because they are, it's informal. And then I also read that 91% of the Nairobians are tenants. So they don't even own their own homes. So, it's, so this must be a big issue in Nairobi. I mean, your, your struggle and this struggle. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's really a big struggle because... Again, um, you find that government does not look at solution-based. Um, if I can give you an example, government came up with this idea that they're going to build affordable homes and social housing to correct this issue of many people living in slums and also people being tenants. 
but they focused on middle class. Middle class already is served by circles, by cooperatives. They can be able to access loans. They can be able to build homes. You know, they don't necessarily need government support than the low income earners who need government support 100% because they don't have access to credit, either mortgage or whatever, uh, to elevate themselves from that situation. So in terms of how the government um, interprets uh, provision for affordable housing and social housing and the prioritization, uh, that's where it's wrong. Because since the Big Four agenda uh, and the money that has been spent, you know, Chinese investment in terms of building affordable homes and social housing in different parts of uh, Nairobi, we've not seen a big change in terms of, you know, uh, slums reducing or more people becoming tenants. You know, there's, there's no change yet. As much as government says every year there'll be 250,000 housing units, uh, still it hasn't translated to you know, secure tenure for most of these uh, people living in informal settlements. When I, when I read these articles in The Guardian and the other publications, the government would always say, we are doing these evictions in the name of development. And, and that's what we hear from all over the world. I mean, remember we were in Chile or wherever it happens, it's like it's always in the name of development. Um, and for some reason, the, the poorest people should pay for this development. Mm. But then development is also comes with investors. You named the Chinese. But Leiliani, I see some of our old friends is also on the list of developers. Can you, can you comment on that? Yeah. Um, first of all, I, I, I do want to say, you know, the irony or the hypocrisy in evicting people from their homes to supposedly create homes. I mean, it the, there's like zero logic there. It's just an illogical policy. Um, I don't know where people go when they're evicted, if they have nowhere to go, they just will set up somewhere else or resettle once the thugs leave, um, they resettle on the very lands that they were evicted from. I mean, it's as, as, as Pauline rightly said, it's a not solution oriented. It's the opposite. Um, I, you know, it came to my attention recently through Twitter that this issue of financialization that I've been talking about and, um, trying to have addressed for some time now that Push the Film is about is right there in Kenya. And when I released the shift directives, which are a human rights document trying to guide governments and investors how they should engage in housing and how they shouldn't to really change this practice of commodifying uber commodification of housing. When I released those directives, some people in Kenya started to uh, message me on Twitter saying, hey, this is happening in Kenya. And I have to say, I was not surprised on the one hand, but surprised. People are always saying to me, oh, this financialization, it's only a Western world phenomenon, developed country, the US, the UK, you know, these sorts of Germany, like, like that. It is very clear that it is happening in Kenya and in Nairobi that this what you talked about, Pauline, the focus on middle income people and a mortgage based housing system and developing more in quotes affordable housing that's not affordable for the bulk of the population in need. This is how financialization starts. So I was sent, in fact, a document 
from the government, from, uh, I can't remember which ministry, but a ministry responsible, I think, for this roadway, so the transportation ministry, um, and, and for this affordable housing scheme, saying that their number one investor that they were trying to attract and who I think was showing interest in Kenya is our friend Frederick Blackstone the largest private equity firm in the area of residential real estate in the world that has made many people's lives miserable tenants living in Blackstone buildings. So, you know, my question is, what is Blackstone doing in Nairobi? And what does this mean for low-income and poor people living in Nairobi. And Pauline, I don't know if you've heard about this beyond the Chinese investors, um, but it seems to me that the government's relying 60% of the funding for this affordable housing scheme shall come from international investors like Blackstone. I don't know what you think about that or if you've heard the same. Uh, well, I have heard uh, of different investors, not necessarily Blackstone, what I'm aware of is the Chinese investors, because that's what has been put out there by government, and that's what government is feeding us. Uh, so they could be there, they could be a player, because, again, government doesn't have the money to invest. They want to attract um, different investors from you know, different places. And I think it also um, sort of gives us an understanding on some of the very many violations that have been happening, including forced evictions, uh, like for example, uh, where government has just recently invested in Garaf. Uh, you know, there was a lot of evictions that took place there even during COVID. And it was, you know, done so that they could build these affordable houses. So there's a push, there's an outward push that, you know, uh, government is being forced um, either to you know, to do what the investors want them to do, minus the human rights regulations and, you know, adhering to the human rights standards. Um, and of course, Chinese investors, we know they don't follow any human rights, you know, principles at all. And it's usually like, yeah, here's the money, uh, no strings attached, you guys can do whatever. And we saw that in the, in the road that Fred just uh, mentioned when we were starting the podcast in Kibra uh, in 2018. Uh, a lot of evictions happened, you know, school-going children lost their schools. It was, you know, during the, the national exams. So you can imagine that disruption that happened, uh, not only for homes, but also socially. Uh, so there is a lot of influence uh, from outside investors. And definitely the government of Kenya doesn't have money uh, to invest, to, to build uh, any social houses, yeah. No, I mean, I of course the government has the right to in, invite investors, but of course, if you have a constitution with a with the right to housing and an adequate housing, these investors should also respect uh, the Kenyan constitution, I guess. And and then we know the Chinese are not so interested in human rights, and then Blackstone is not so interested in human rights. It's like that's a bad mix, Leilani. It's a bad mix, but it's it's not just. Um, that they, I mean, of course, they won't even know about the Constitution. They don't care about the Constitution, the investors, because the government isn't saying to them, we want to grow our economy and have human rights outcomes. That could be a kind of development, right? A human rights-based development where, where as a country progresses and grows, what is achieved is higher levels of education, higher uh, levels of health, and more security with respect to housing. That could be an economic model. Right. But it's not the economic 
economic model that the government of Kenya is, has chosen. And we know, like Pauline says, the government says, whoa, we don't have the money to invest. Well, first of all, the government of Kenya, from what I know, has created tax laws to ensure that they're not getting more money through taxation. They lowered the corporate tax rate to below 15%. They kept capital gains tax down at 5% when there was a push to move it to up to 12% or 12.5%. They invite in consulting firms like Deloitte's, you know, who don't have the interests of the poorest Kenyans uh, in their mind, in their policy, in the way that they approach, right? So, so we have to start encouraging and actually compelling governments to abide by their own constitutions and use their own constitutions to inform how they create their economies, right? To me, that's what's really missing here. I mean, I think, too, we know that Former presidents uh, of Kenya have uh, their own stash of money, right? That isn't being taxed. That's in offshore, etc. So the former president got caught in the Panama Papers, uh, Kenyatta, with a lot of money uh, offshore on offshore accounts. Yeah, exactly. And he's he's not paying tax on that money. That money should be taxed, and those taxes should be used to support poor Kenyans, right? So so the, the global pattern of kleptocracy and exists also in Kenya. So you are up against something really tough here. How, how do you see that? Well, uh, absolutely. And it's uh, just so you know, the capital gain uh, tax has been up to 15%. Uh, so we are in for, you know, tough economic times. But also regarding the Panama Papers, it's not just the Kenyatta's, you know, who have stashed their monies. Even the Moyes, you know, our former presidents, all of them just stash money there. And you hear they've developed, I don't know, affordable, not affordable, but houses in, you know, Switzerland or whatever it is. And I'm like, bring that money back to Kenya, then build houses and follow the human rights standards. Why are you stashing and hiding money anyway? Uh, but just to uh, bring us back to... Uh, the human rights um, approach to affordable housing, one of the discussions we had with the cabinet secretary and the principal secretary for housing in Kenya is that they were saying, once we follow all these principles, it's expensive. It becomes expensive to build affordable housing and social housing because of, like a big cost then goes to relocation and resettlement, and we can't afford that. And I remember one project that the World Bank was supporting, a road project in Kenya, I think the James Gishuri Rironi Road project. Uh, the World Bank had put in some money, and at some point they withdrew uh, because, you know, there was too many complaints from the uh, project-affected persons, and they didn't want to get themselves dirty. And the government just, you know, took money from coffers and they're like, then cabinet will finance this if you guys don't want to finance it. And people were not compensated. They just bulldozed through the entire project. So, you know, government is also getting alternatives. Like if you give us too many regulations or too many standards, or if you are high up there with human rights, then we'll finance this project on our own the way we want it and the way we envision it. So we are also getting ourselves into some very complex situation where government is now not threatened by financial institutions. Because in the past, we'd be like, oh, yeah, let's run to the World Bank, you know, let's write letters, this, you know, the standards are not being met, or, you know. But government, when it finds its own, then who do you run to? 
the, the local court system will not necessarily uh, support you because then they look at it from the public interest good. They're like, oh, it will benefit millions of Kenyans, so why are you 200 complaining? Mm. But Pauline, it seems like you are a very outspoken critics of this practice. So how do they see you? Do, do they treat you with respect? Who? The government and the investors. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, they don't see me. You know, this is just a personal opinion. They see the community who's aggrieved. You know, they're the ones who have the voice. Otherwise, if I talk too much, and, well, I don't live in the informal settlements where they're evicting, um, I just have my own personal opinion. Uh, but I think with, as I said before, communities are empowered. These people who are affected by this project now know their rights and they're able to talk more. And, you know, the public at large is getting very interested uh, with this project. And I hope we can be more Paulines, you know, people who can be able to really talk about these issues so that we don't have these investors coming to mess up our country in the name of development. So, you know, the name of our podcast is Pushback Talks. And so it, it's actually, it's inspiring to hear that there is a very strong movement pushing back on the forced evictions and that people are or getting the language now, which is like a very big project for us, uh, me and Leilani, when we've been doing these films, that that we can get the right language. Housing is a human right, and that people also can can use that in their struggle. And it seems, that seems to be happening in, in, in Nairobi right now. That, that's really cool. And Pauline, I have a question. Have there been any wins, any small wins that communities have managed? Have they resisted eviction? Have they been relocated somewhere that they wanted to be relocated? Have they has their voice been heard uh, or listened to by government, or is it still just brewing? Well, absolutely, it's not all doom and gloom. There has <laughs> been some some wins for communities, like for example, there's an informal settlement in Nairobi called Deep Sea, and they've been able to really push back against their forced evictions for many years under a road that is supposed to displace them has not been constructed, and it's been done by the European Union, and they've had, I think, to look for an alternative. And there are talks with the government uh, to compensate them, uh, at least for them to be able to get somewhere where they can relocate to. So, you know, these are you know, some examples of some of the wins that communities have been able to, to achieve over the years. But again, also, something very interesting is happening because uh, the way... Um, we think about development has changed. Uh, there are also some communities, on the other hand, who choose not to really push back, but to have dialogue with government. And we've seen them, we've seen this practice in a county like Mombasa, where there's also a project that is being done, a social housing project. And the community there decided, well, let's discuss with government, let's dialogue, let's see how uh, this can help us, can be mutually beneficial. And I think they sort of reached a middle ground. And, well, it wasn't a win-win, but the project is ongoing, and I haven't seen the communities talk much about it. So it means that there was some sort of compromise that was reached. So it shows different levels of advocacy. It shows different levels of reasoning uh, between communities, because at the end of the day, uh, these informal settlements, they are homes, and if you push back too much, you end up losing. You're bulldozed mm. out. So you have to be strategic in your advocacy. Mm. Yeah. You're bulldozed out, Leilani. That's uh, the reality. And what I've seen from, uh, well, from Nigeria and other places, it's extremely brutal to be bulldozed out of your home. 
and quite often without any notification before. So you just wake up yeah. one morning and the bulldozers arrive. It's like unbelievable that this happens in this time in history. Mm-hmm. We should we should know better and we should do better. Um, so Pauline, what are you what are you doing this this weeks? What are you into right now? What is your on your mind? What is your these struggles? Well, what's on my mind this week? I have two things. One is uh, I'm working on a policy issue uh, between community and some company. And I'm just trying to rationalize because of selective interpretation of the law. You know, what does it mean uh, for a law that's supposed to protect the community? And the community also uses that law to push back and make the rest of the community not benefit. So it's like the community is now split. They want to use the law to benefit a certain section as opposed to another one. So that's a very complicated issue for me and I'm trying to balance to see uh, how do I help both parties uh, reach like a win-win situation. Yeah, win-win is always better. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, And the second thing on my mind is on some land issues I'm working on with some women and also just trying to see how uh, my law firm can be a social enterprise as well because I think uh, that's important uh, for you know communities that I work with to be able to benefit uh, from from the business that I have but also you know get their rights addressed so just trying to balance those two things. Cool. Inspirational. Yeah, it is. It is inspirational. And the issue of women and land, of course, I mean, we know how central land is and land rights are to uh, women's well-being and economic well-being. That's been documented and researched at length. One of the things I have read about Kenya is that the land prices are out of control and that there's this issue about who owns what land. And there's a lot of public land still, but there's a lot of private lands and people claiming land as their own, etc. So I assume you're in this mess as you're trying to work on women's land rights. Absolutely. And one interesting thing is that, um, you know, where my practice is in Kuala, this is one of the areas where title deeds were released later. Uh, Other parts of the country got title deeds, you know, way before than the coastal region. So the coastal region sort of got title deeds later on. So there's a lot of demand for land now. And, uh, you know, there's so many transactions going on. And I can just see, like, I think every other day I get a woman asking me, so how do I register my land? How do I do succession? You know, I have a divorce case going, so how do I not lose out? So all these things, you know, land being highly commercialized, and I'm thinking, so where will you live if you sell everything? And I can't, you know, start saying don't sell because I know also you have to put food on the table, you have to take kids to school. So, you know, this balance becomes a bit unsettling in terms of uh, what land really means beyond it being a commercial value, you know. Land should mean something, right? It should mean that that's your home, that you have security of tenure, that your kids can be able to come to a home home, you know. But land has always been an issue in Kenya. I mean, you had the the bridge there until 1964 (laughs) running the country. And so they they came for for something. 
And so it, that's kind of, and, and I, I mean, this is what we see when we made push also this kind of constant land grabbing and also now land grabbing within the cities. So it's it's like an ongoing thing and, and now people have to defend it. And happily we have people like you and, and Leilani yeah. who are who are fighting back. And, and I think giving language to people who fight back is really, really important. Yes. I, I'm very interested in what's happening in uh, Kenya right now. And Pauline, I extend to you here publicly um, the support of the shift. If we can work together and fortify your efforts in any way, we're here for you because um, I'm really fearful about this big push and move in Kenya. Um, I mean, obviously there's this over, like Frederick mentions, you know, the, the colonization of Kenya um, by the Brits. And I think so much of what's happening now is related to that still, this colonial hold. Um, anyway, I think that the fight for the right to housing and the right to land in Kenya is really important right now. So I'm just extending that to you yeah. um, to help with yeah. this language that Frederick talks about, the arming people with the language of human rights and, of course, what it means. And I've met many Kenyan women. I've spent um, a little bit of time in Kenya, not when I was rapporteur before that. And um, Kenyan women are strong, so they know their rights. And uh, if I can help in any way, it's cool. One thing we didn't mention is the fact, you know, the UN has a big presence in Nairobi, UN Habitat, the agency responsible for human settlements within the UN system is based in Nairobi. And uh, I'm interested uh, to hear from my UN Habitat colleagues how they're viewing this and what is their role in protecting the human rights of Kenyans who are facing all of these pressures. So that's a that's a message out to all of you about you and Habitat to write to us and tell us what you think, what you're doing. We want to know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then, of course, in this big global game, we are looking to Africa as I, I was listening to. I mean, Vice President Kamala Harris was in Africa recently and the U.S. are trying to kind of be back on the ground because you see the Chinese are taking so much uh, territories and building a lot of infrastructure and, and also the Russians are trying to get in. And basically the Americans hasn't been present in the, the only thing they've, the message they sent to Africa the last 20 years has been about their own national security. So it's been the, the, the war against terror and that's the only investments they've been interested in. So they kind of in some way just left Africa. I don't know. Uh, if the European Union is as bad, but it's uh, it's kind of sad that now there is an interest in Africa again, and that's only because of uh, this kind of the superpower war uh, out there. Uh, I mean, I'm in all for the Ukrainians, but um, the interest for Africa should be deeper than that, I would say. Yeah. So, Pauline, it's been a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Do you have any final words to our listeners that they should, any secrets about <laughs> Kenya? <laughs> well, uh, thank you so, so much for, for having me on this podcast. Um, and just as a final word, and especially when it comes to uh, financialization, is that you know, homes are becoming very expensive, not just in Kenya, but 
everywhere. I, I don't know who's going to buy these homes if they keep upping the prices the way they are upping them. Uh, and I think there's a very immediate urgency uh, for people to speak towards this issue, for government to regulate uh, pricing of housing, uh, for social housing to be social housing. Mm. Uh, can you imagine that social housing in Kenya is going for $10,000? How is that a social house? Like even me, I don't know how long it will take me to afford a house worth $10,000. Well, mm. I can maybe qualify for credit, but you know, it means every month something goes from my pocket yeah. and I can't afford that even when I'm employed. So you can imagine they're very marginalized. So I think uh, we should rechange the model. Either they are subsidized such that somebody is able to, to pay what they can afford, but not having a standard price there, like it's something for sale, you know? And the basic services are not assured. I keep saying these social houses are just gonna be a vertical slum, you know? Uh, because in Kenya, problems are problem. It doesn't matter whether a Chinese investor is, is invested in it or not. Mm. Once they check out and once the flagship is done, then you have an issue of water and electricity. So how do you take water up, I don't know how many stories in a building uh, with a jerry can? Because that's what is going to happen, you know. So we really need to, to think through our housing models, our housing functions as a country, and even the obligations of government to provide... Uh, this service to people and even for people to demand and say hey this design doesn't work for us uh, we can we can do something better um, mm. so we are in that position because we are now uh, more empowered and we can be able to view things uh, from a different lens so thank you thank you so much for for having me and i'm looking forward to work with the shift uh, that would be interesting um, to be an interesting partnership absolutely Cool. And, and Leilani, what Pauline just said could be said in my town here in Sweden or in your town in Canada. I mean, the market isn't really delivering to people if we're talking about homes anymore. It's no. it's totally gone amok. There's a mismatch, a mismatch between the price and what people can afford. Yes. So, it's ridiculous. And they still call it a market. <laughs> yeah. But what, what Pauline said about social housing, I'm seeing this in developing countries everywhere where there's, in quotes, social housing being built, but it's coming online at uh, quite an expense. As Pauline said, $10,000 is, you know, there's 17% of the population in Kenya makes $1.90 a day. So uh, $10,000 is, is prohibitive, you know, so... It's a bit too much. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I saw it in Egypt um, as well. And it, that is not social housing. And it's not what was intended by the concept of social housing, which was intended to, to house people who don't have resources, not to house people who have resources. So, um, And it's also good for a nation when people have a safe home where they can know they will stay, they will build their lives much better. And that's exactly. that's good for the nation. So it's an investment in people's homes is actually investment in the future of, of your own country. It should be. So it should it's be. a little bit counterproductive. Well, thank you again, Pauline and Leilani. It's a pleasure to dive into and understand and learn more about uh, and get inspired by people like Pauline who is doing Cool. I mean, that's, I think, the luxury of our work, that we meet so many cool people. Absolutely. And it gives me hope to to, to be able to talk to Pauline and, and others that are taking this fight. Yeah. 
So Leilani, I heard that of some strange reason it's supposed to be springtime in, in Ottawa, but it's like 28 degrees Celsius. Just this week. Next week we go back to normal. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, Climate change. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's scary, actually. It is scary. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for this. And, uh, and if people would like to support our podcast, do you have any suggestions, Leilani? Well, right now, I think people are feeling really poor because they've given to the Kickstarter campaign for Breaking Social. <laughs> but if anyone has a few extra dollars kicking around or euros uh, or any other currency... Uh, they can go to our Patreon account, patreon.com, and look for Pushback Talks. And every little bit helps because this podcast is not funded and we do not accept commercials. So we're commercial-free and poor. And if you're a listener, you can always find us on, on Twitter or on Instagram or Facebook. And please be active and, and like and comment and send on our messages because that helps us in the fight with the algorithms because we don't have money to to sponsor our messages we we actually need friends and as you're listening consider yourself a friend that's all thank you very much and uh, have a nice day out there thanks frederick pushback talks is produced by wg film to support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and at push underscore the film. Or check out our websites, maketheshift.org, pushthefilm.com, or breakingsocialfilm.com. <laughs>